What's up, Redemption? How you doing? My name is John Hendricks, and this is another episode of the Threshing Floor Podcast. This is number seven, if you're keeping up at home. And we're so glad that you're joining us. And this week's episode, we're going to sit down with another special guest. We're going to be welcoming John Early to the podcast, a Redemption elder and multi-time national champ. Having him on for the first time, we'll go ahead and bait up our hook and see if we can go fishing for a few more spoilers and GOC hints before getting into some competitive deck building strategies and things of that nature and what goes into that for a competitive player like him. So without further ado, we'll jump right into the conversation. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for joining. All right. Thanks again for joining. My name is John Hendricks and I am joined by John Early. So John, for people that might not know anything about you and haven't had much experience in the competitive space, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into redemption, how long you've been playing that type of thing? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been playing redemption since 1998. So basically, uh, my redemption career is long enough to legally drink. So that's a pretty long time. So I first got into redemption um, from Rochester, Minnesota, and Chris Bainey was a pretty big figure in the game for a huge number of years, still does MC work every national tournament. So anybody that's ever been to a nationals knows who Chris is. And Chris was connected with the church that my parents went to and that I went to because, you know, I was eight years old at the time or whatever. And so he got into the game and started hosting tournaments at the church, Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota. And so that was where I first started playing. I played in like one tournament in November of 1998. And then starting in 1999, Chris hosted monthly tournaments. Every month there was a redemption tournament in Rochester. And I played in pretty much all of those up until I moved away to uh, to college in 2009. And frankly, even when I went away to college, I didn't go very far. I went to the University of Wisconsin Stout in Menominee, which was like two hours away, three hours away, something like that. So I would come back semi-frequently on weekends and still play in tournaments and things like that. So I've been playing for um, a very long time. So as far as about myself, I'm married. I have a wonderful wife and two kids, uh, my son, John. So we got a lot of Johns floating around in here. We're going to get everybody very confused before the end of the day. My son, John, is uh, three and a half, and my daughter, Melody, is two and a half-ish. I don't know. The halves aren't very exact there. but So I got two little ones. Um, I am now in Belle Plaine, Minnesota, which is a suburb of the Twin Cities. So I live up where the Allstad clan does. And in fact, my wife is a member of the Allstad clan. Anybody that's been around Redemption for any amount of time has heard about the Allstads. And so I am connected to them uh, through my wife. Obviously, I was friends with the family for years, which is how I met my wife. So that is a little bit about me. What else you want to know? So uh, that means that at some point along the lines, you learned how to actually pronounce the last name correctly. Correct. Yes, exactly. I don't know, honestly, exactly when I first like started hanging out with the Allstads per se, but it was probably around 2007, 2008 when I really started interacting with them more. And part of that was because of Tim Molly, who uh, is also married to 
in Allstad. So we have connections there as well. So I would say that's probably, you know, when we kind of got connected, obviously they were in Minnesota at the same time I was in Minnesota. Uh, at one point in Minnesota, if you wanted to, you could go to a tournament every single weekend. We had the tournaments in Rochester that Chris hosted. We had a play group in Austin, Minnesota, ran by Pat Wester that they hosted tournaments. You had two different groups going in the cities. You had, I'm going to mess this up and Justin can come on a later episode and correct me, but I believe it was Ben Nichols that was hosting tournaments um, in partnership with Northwestern Bookstores. And then there was also a tournament that was ran at... uh, um, it was in Rosemont, I believe. And it was, uh, and I can't remember exactly who was running those ones, but point being for a period of time in Minnesota, you could go to a tournament every single week of the month, frankly, every single week of the year, you know, with holidays being the lone exception there. And so we would run into each other frequently at those. They would come down to Rochester. I would go up to the cities, etc. So that's kind of how uh, I got to know the Allsteads. Do you feel like you were fairly good initially or was there a learning curve that you had to go through? And then how long was the process if there was a learning curve that you felt like, okay, I'm pretty good at this game? Oh, gosh, I was terrible when I started. I was eight years old. I mean, so, no, I I wasn't very good. (laughs) Um, You could have been been the, the, you know, random prodigy, though, that just walked on the scene and boom. Oh no, that that definitely wasn't me. I, I took a few years before I before I got good. Um, I would say learning curve. That's it's tough to say because yeah, there was one, but I think it was more just me getting older and like having access to more brain cells and stuff like that in general as I grew up, as opposed to me like starting when I was twenty years old and learning the game and then becoming better at the game as I learn more about the game. It was more of just a general like life progression that also impacted my my playing abilities, so to speak. So definitely a learning curve. Um, I mean, I would say if you look at, you know, competitive playing, things like that, I became a competitive player, like a legitimate competitive player in 2005, 2006. I was I was very I was very good around that point. And then in 2009 is when I would say I took the next step to being like legitimately like a top level player that players talk about. So I thought I was good in 2006. I think other people recognize that I was good in 2009. And then I would say around 2012 is probably when I hit like superstar status, so to speak. Um, frankly, if you look back, um, I have placed in a category at nationals every year since 2009, with the exception of 2017, when I didn't play and judged all three days. So I've placed in a nationals category every year dating back to 2009, which I don't think there's anybody else that can say anything along those lines. And I've won a category every year since 2015 again, with the exception of 17 when I didn't play. So since 15, I've been on a, on a pretty good role. I'd, I'd say. Do you think that having access to those tournaments helped you in the beginning and being able to get that much playing against other, I'm guessing at least somewhat competitive players? 
Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, the Rochester play group was a stacked play group for a number of years there. And I can start just name dropping all sorts of players that, uh, you won't recognize any of them just to get them around for long enough. But if people like Justin listen to this episode and even Gabe to a degree, I could just name drop dozens of players from the Rochester play group that were all really good players. And so, yeah, I got to, uh, I got to play against them on a monthly basis, sometimes on a weekly basis. And, you know, there's a saying iron sharpens iron. And so that was a little bit of what it was for me in order to be the best, you do have to play against the best and learn from them and grab, you know, the experience that you can from them. You know, I would say I was always, I was always competitively minded. I just wasn't very good. So we'll, we'll kind of step away from that and, and get into what I normally do here at this part of the episode. And that's go over some spoilers that have been released. And there's only one from this week that I am aware of that, that came out and that's the thankful leper. But um, Gabe did mention to me through a DM on Discord that I completely skipped over St. Patrick. It is clay, green, and teal. It's got the identifiers of missionary, priest, and prophet. And it's a meek card, meek hero, that also has a star ability. And the star ability is to top deck a green card from deck. Um, I know you might not be able to say much about this, but I think it's pretty cool that their star abilities on a meek card for various reasons. And I'm kind of wondering if that's something that might become more common. Do you, do you know any, anything that you can share about that? I mean, I can tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll drop some nuggets here. We'll, we'll pull back the curtain a little bit more. So this is the only, uh, non flip meek card in the set. So there are no other uh, meek dudes that don't have flips. So there's no other meek guys that have star abilities on them as a non-flip. The rest are all, you know, flip cards that have a star ability potentially on one side and then, you know, a meek ability there. There are a couple uh, meek lost souls floating around. We think that's important in this set as well as the way that we built and designed, you know, LOC and GOC. It was important for us to have a meek soul available in the set because there's some things that look for that and trigger off of having those meek souls. So we thought that was important. So there's a few cars that are meek, but St. Patrick is the only meek hero that isn't a flip there with that star. As to whether or not we'll do it again in the future, I guess my answer is going to be probably, but I don't know if it'll be anytime soon necessarily. You know, there's a few different factors working against that. The first of which is that stars were intended as the overarching mechanic tying together the block of POC, LOC, GOC. And so similar to how cloud icons were something that we use very heavily in Cloud of Witnesses and then sparingly after, I think you'll see star abilities used sparingly going forward because they are really the set mechanic of this block of sets that we were developing. And that was done intentionally way back and you know, prophecies of Christ. It was an idea that we came up with as a team and how we molded it and shaped it. And there was a lot of different input into it, but it was something that we intended to use, you know, across the three sets. And then, you know, as far as the mechanic goes, it's obviously something that's in our toolbox that we can use, but I don't know if we'll use it much. So I don't know if we'll see all that many opportunities for this style of card uh, going forward. Hearing that from the random player's perspective, I don't know that I would want star abilities to go away. I know some people like a friend of mine named Jay thinks that they're too, some of them are too quote unquote broken if you get to do something random. But 
Do you do you know if you guys like if this was and you mentioned Cloud of Witness? Do you think you guys would would pick something for the new set? Another introduce some new mechanic for that to replace it? I think that we like to pick something and use it and build on it and expand upon it. You kind of look at the reserve that way too. When reserve first came out, it was very limited interaction. And as we progressed in the lifespan of the reserve, we've introduced additional ways to interact with it from both the opponent side and the player side. When reserve first came out, I don't think there were any ways for the opponent to interact with it beyond maybe looking at the cards that were there. And now we've got abilities that discard cards out of it, put cards into it, do all sorts of other stuff with it. You know, you got voice of heaven that can just blow the entire thing up. So you just kind of see how that's progressed over time. And so I think we'd look at mechanics on a similar level, but obviously a lower tier since reserve is such a big deck building aspect as well there. So you look at mechanics and we do similar things where we start out a mechanic and it just does, you know, one thing and we use that mechanic sparingly and we interact with it in a limited fashion and then we build upon it, we grow it, we add in different interactions with it and branch into other mechanics. And then sometimes that mechanic gets put to bed and then sometimes that mechanic becomes a mainstay. And so I look at things like territory class. Territory class, when it first started out, was only on enhancements and it was only on a few of them. And then it built and it built and it built. And now it's on characters and enhancements and it's all over the place. So I look at star abilities as a mechanic that we started off on pretty much just enhancements. And then it went to characters and now it's on characters and enhancements and the things that we did with star abilities changed and progressed through the three sets as well now i'm not saying that we're never going to use star abilities again in fact i think we will have star abilities in every set that we produce going forward i just don't think they'll be the main core mechanic tying anything together like they were in these three sets all right well let me ask you this saint patrick looks like to me personally a card that it looks good. I don't know that it has much use. Um, do you think this card is good? I do. I actually think this card is really good, not because it's good, but because of what it enables in certain decks. So I saw a lot of discussion on Discord after St. Patrick was spoiled about, you know, what does what does he bring? And, hey, we got Meek, you know, and, and what does he bring to the Meek things? No, no, no. See, what people are missing is St. Patrick is green and teal. So it's about what can we bring into the Meek through him? He's not good. He's a 3-5 Meek hero. Like, he's not good on his own rights. But he's green and he's teal. So you're saying he's a gateway he can play delivered so he can bring delivered into the meek deck so if you want to play a straight meek deck he can bring delivered into it i'll also tell you another nugget here for our listeners there's at least one other meek hero that has green on his side he's not all green but he's partially green and so you now have two green meek dudes that can play delivered so it's not about the fact that saint patrick is meek it's about the fact that he's green and he's teal, which are not meek colors, but now they are. Okay, so you mentioned the other one. Is that Peter that has that has green on his meek side? So did we spoil Peter? I think I think we have a partial image of Peter. 
And so the trick is, I don't know for sure whether or not we've spoiled Peter, but I will just go ahead and let the cat all the way out of the bag. I'm actually, uh, I have all my playtest documents like in front of me right now. So I might like get myself in some pretty deep trouble with, with the other elders here, but hey, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, P- Peter's, he's got green on him. Yeah, he does. Just do what you have to do for the brand here. Exactly. Yeah, we'll, we'll just drop some spoilers. So yeah, Peter, Peter has some green on him. Um, and uh, there's actually one more that also has green on him. So there's actually three. So Delivered is like super playable now in the Meek themes, which is obviously really good because I think we all know that Delivered is really good. Offering your son too, for that matter. You could you could also use this to uh, bring a Meek character into decks that don't necessarily use utilize one already to bring awesome things to, to where you get to play on your Meek character or whatever. Oh and yeah, have those identifiers coming into battle. Absolutely. If you've got a profit deck that wants to, that has a, you know like a cherubim or something that can ban to, to a profit, you can bring in Saint Patrick and then play awesome things to, you know, play an enhancement that way. Yeah, absolutely. It does give you know those brigades that ability to have that pre-block play through through awesome things. That's a great point. Now we'll roll over to the thankful leper, and. This one, this one is part of New Testament uh, good gold that I think was, this is what God, Gabe mentioned, was the ones that had the encounter with Jesus but were not the long-lasting relationships. So they're the ones that interacted with him, the characters. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good way to, to sum it up. Uh, you know, when we looked at laying out and designing Gospels of Christ, when we first started laying out cards, I actually called Gabe and said, hey, like, do we have our brigades right here? And that was when he kind of laid out his vision for his de- design philosophy on this set. It made total sense. For a long, long time, good gold New Testament was just like Luke and John. If you were Luke or John, you were good gold. And it just, that was what it was. And then if you were a New Testament female, you were white. And that's just what it was. And it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And it was a very limited, narrow definition. And so with GOC, we decided to modify that. And going forward, our idea and look is that gold characters are characters that Jesus had interactions with that weren't necessarily uh, more than once or twice or limited interactions. And then you look at the white heroes as those that he had, you know, deeper connections with uh, friends and family, things like that. And then obviously you have your purple, which are his disciples, his followers. And so you kind of have three distinct New Testament brigades that all have different levels of connection to Jesus. This one is a Samaritan uh, and they're keeping the, you guys are keeping the one in 10 number. So it's got decent, decent defense numbers. Um, and then the special ability, it, it obviously has a, has a star ability as well. Um, I guess obviously it's just me looking at it. You guys have seen it on, on discord. So if you go back and look at it, you look at the top 10 cards of a deck, just look at the top 10 cards of a deck. Doesn't sound all that great. Oh no. I think it's incredible. If you get that information and you can take that information and know what your your opponent's going to gather in the next next couple of pickups, I mean that could be that could be pretty good. Plus, it could it could help you for seeing if you need to break up what the top of your deck is. Um, but the 
ability on it is you may look at the top X cards of a deck, and X is defined as the number of lost souls in play. And then you can take up to, uh, or you can reserve an evil card or take up to one card you own. Cannot be interrupted. So it didn't take long for someone to point out that this is an awesome mechanic if you wanted to throw someone's evil dominance into a reserve because there's no limitation. Just reserve an evil card. Not evil enhancement, not evil character, just evil card. Um, in playtesting, did that did that come up to where was that, was that the main target was was trying to pitch one of those evil dominants into a reserve? Oh yeah, <laughs> thankful leper is amazing. Pitching evil dominants into reserve, tossing super important characters, nasty curses. He is ridiculously good. I honestly don't think that in playtesting I ever looked at my own deck with him. Let's put it that way. I'm sure there was probably a time or two, like if my opponent was protected and I didn't have one of a half dozen ways that we introduced in the set to negate storehouse. You know, I'm sure there were a few times that I looked at my own, but more often than not, he goes and he looks at the top X of the opponent's deck and takes out their best evil card, which oftentimes is a dominant, which is why also in the set, we've got a number of ways to grab dominance back from reserve, uh, generic grabs from reserve, things like that. Uh, there's a card out there that can grab your entire reserve all at once. So we, we've it got grabs, some... Whoa, 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 whoa. It grabs it to your hand? Oh, see, I didn't say that. I just said it grabs the entire reserve. I didn't say what it does with it. I just said it grabs the whole thing. We know Voice from Heaven gets rid of the reserve. So you're saying there's a card that essentially does almost the opposite. So there is a card that can protect your entire reserve from Voice of Heaven by making it so that the cards are no longer in the reserve. I won't tell you what it does to them, but it makes it it makes them so that they're no longer in the reserve. We'll just leave it at that. Okay, that, that's fair. But my pondering mind just thinks the only way that they're not in play, they're not in the reserve, or they're not discarded or banished, is they're in set aside. I mean, they could be set aside. You could shuffle them into the deck. You can under deck them. You could add them all to your hand. Maybe that's what it does. I'm not going to tell you, but it does something that makes it so that your reserve is empty, but you still have potential access to those cards. That's, that's cool. I guess not to, not to, not to force my way into the rabbit hole here, but it almost seems like it might play with some type of fortress that holds all of your cards, almost like a reserve, but the fortress is technically in play, but it's holding them. That's what old school storehouse was before storehouse was like a good card and like super playable. Uh, frankly, old storehouse for a little bit there was actually very playable as well. But old storehouse, you just could like dump as many enhancements out of your hand as you wanted into storehouse and it just sat there on the table. And then you could pick up one a turn. So if you were, you know, had 14 cards in your hand for some reason, you could put six enhancements in storehouse and then, on your next turn, you say, okay, I think I need this one. And you grab that one back up into your hand. So, I mean, old storehouse was kind of playable and that's kind of what you're describing here. Just tell me this completely separate. Just pretend like it's separate. Did you guys try to make rubble and dust playable? I can tell you that I'm a really big fan of rubble and dust. It's one of my favorite non-playable dominance because it has so much like flexibility and versatility and can do so many different things for you but the requirement on it is is sometimes a little tricky and sometimes it just ends up being like a worse version of other cards so basically it can be christian martyr with setup so it's a worse version of christian martyr so you have to set it up it can be angel of the lord 
but it's a worse version because you have to set it up. It can be shipwreck, but it's a worse version because you have to set it up. It can be destruction, but it's a worse version because you have to set it up. So it can be all of these really good dominance, but you have to set it up. So it just ends up being not quite as good as those. So I'm not going to say that we like deliberately set out to make Rebel and Dust playable, but if it becomes more playable as a result of some of the things that we've done, I don't think there's any of us that are going to be, you know, disappointed by that. I was thinking that Rubble and Dust with the, um, I guess, I think it's demons maybe that like how things were possessed, people were possessed by demons. So there was a lot of that support in the Orange Brigade that placed itself. There's definitely some orange place cards in the set. That's definitely a theme that we built out upon. You know, I'd say it's probably about, oh, I mean, without staring at the cards directly in front of me, 50-50. So there's probably seven or eight cards that place. And I'd say about four of them place themselves on things and four of them just place themselves in specific areas and then do things. So orange on its own doesn't necessarily set up rubble and dust like you're, you know, kind of edging at here, but it does, it does help. So we'll, we'll kind of get off of, uh, off of the little trails here and I'll ask you, what do you, what do you think about thankful leper? And, and did, obviously you hinted that you used it on your opponent's deck when you play tested it, how, how good is it to you and how well did it fit into new Testament good gold? when you were playtesting? It is really good to me. I can't remember exactly if this was one of the ones that we toned down, but at one point, New Testament Gold was like really, really stupid good, and we toned down a bunch of cards in the theme, and then it was just pretty good after that point, like very playable, uh, probably competitive level playable. Thankful Lever is going to go in every New Testament Gold deck that's built. I'll just tell you that. It is, you know, we're giving you a dozen some, 15 some heroes and enhancements and whatnot in the theme. And so that might be a few too many for you to play everything in a deck. So you're going to have to make some choices. And so when I look at that and I look at cards that I think are automatics in that theme, this is one of them. The star ability on its own, if you get that early enough, like that is an incredible star ability. For a number of years, Urm and Thummim was a really, really good card because it told you exactly what you needed to do. You could look at your opponent's hand and see what they had, and it told you what you needed to do. I look at this similar. You're looking at a full fifth of your opponent's deck, 20%. You know, if you don't see the cards in that set of 10 cards that tells you exactly what your opponent is trying to do and what their game plan is, then you had a really bad hit. You know, you hit seven dominance and three souls or something. I don't know. But out of 10 cards, if I see, you know, LOC Noah and authority of Christ, then I know I'm playing you and you're doing your silly King Noah nonsense, <laughs> you know? So like, if you see 10 cards of your opponent's deck early on, it gives you so much information about how you have to play the game. It lets you know if you need to be super aggressive or if you can you know, stay back and be a little bit more uh, careful in how you use your resources. So the star ability on its own is like incredibly playable. And then you look at its main ability. It's a uh, hero ability that gets to activate anytime it goes into battle. And it's just really, really good. And then if you look at it in the context of the overall theme, again, without spoiling too much for everybody, there's a number of cards that get a benefit 
from when you reserve an evil card or I think it's any card, actually. There's a couple that do a couple of other things. But basically, Thankful Leopard's reserve ability is really good on his own. And he's going to trigger other things that the gold theme is doing and set off other abilities as a result of him doing his job. The special ability that's you may um, look at the top X cards of a deck, that obviously screams like harvest time, especially in GOC only, whenever that category kind of fleshes itself out. So boom, you get to play all these souls, and then every time you go in, all these souls are in play. So then you get to look at more and potentially make sure you you can get to one of their their high end cards that you need to, you know, stash away or or make it more difficult for them to use. Oh, totally. Yeah, it definitely grows in power either A, as the game progresses and more souls naturally hit the table, or B, if you do something like a harvest time and just dump all the souls on the table all at once. Now that now that we're kind of fully into GOC here, let me ask you, how did playtesting for, for this set, um, from your perspective, how did it compare to previous sets that you guys have done? You know, I think GOC playtesting was really good. It was it was a really good process. Frankly, I've been on the playtest team since oh, 2011, so ten years now, give or take. Um, I don't remember exactly when I when I joined, but it's it's been a while. And so we've done playtesting a number of different ways, quote unquote. You know, in the time that I've been on the team, but. This set, we just have did a really good job of our connectivity between the elder group. Our communication was really good during this set. It's always good, but this set, it felt, you know, really good. We were having weekly, you know, line calls almost where we would get on and just chat with each other. And we had, you know, specific things that we were looking at and whatnot. And we did something very similar back in Cloud of Witnesses. Um, when it was kind of Gabe, Justin, and I with a few other players as well. Gabe, Justin, and I got on at the time it was Skype because Discord like wasn't a thing. I mean, it probably was, but we just weren't using it. And so we would get on Skype at any like hour of the day, just kind of randomly. Like it wasn't planned. It's just we all were kind of in that phase of our lives where we were staying up till midnight, two a.m. and we would just talk and we just talk about cards and, and stuff like that. And so Cloud of Witnesses was a really good set in that regard too. But I think GOC, really, our communication as a team was just excellent on this. We did a few new things with how we look at the information of the cards. And then we had a really good you know process for non-elder playtesters that were helping us with that, which we've always had to a degree. We always include people outside of the core elder team in our playtesting process. But I feel like this year we did a really, really good job with the specificity of A, what we gave them to test and B, the information that we got back from them and how we asked for that information. That was really very helpful. I think it was Tyler we talked to at first that mentioned that when cards come out and they're created that if they want to know if an ability can be broken and manipulated, you're, you're kind of the guy that, that they lean on, not that you're the only one. So what do you, what do you remember as the most broken interaction from GOC playtesting for you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'll give you a, a little bit. I'll give you a kind of, I'll give you some scenarios and some generics here. So what gets brought to me isn't necessarily um, quote-unquote broken interactions. What gets brought to me is combo-specific pieces 
And do we think this will enable a combo? Do we think this can lead to NPE, which is negative player experience? Do we think it can lead to lockout scenarios and situations? Do we think it promotes healthy interactive gameplay? Stuff like that. That's what usually gets brought to me. Uh, broken interactions are things that are just blatantly either A, this doesn't work, or B, card A plus card B creates poof, instant game wins, things like that. Those usually get ironed out well before you know, we even get into deep play testing on things. So honestly, I don't remember many of those from GOC. The biggest one that I remember is the one that Gabe, you know, kind of alluded to a little bit with the orange place theme. And so there was a card and I'll just kind of tell the story and elaborate a little bit more uh, on what Gabe said, but I was playing a type two deck with it and my type two deck, I don't remember the exact statistics, but Basically, for those of you that are semi-familiar with the game, Type 2 plays 100 card decks. And so you have 100 cards of deck to get through. I decked out on turn three. (laughs) So it was pretty broken. And so the things that were broken about it were it was draw X from top, draw X from bottom, where X is the number of placed cards that you control or are in an opponent's territory, or it might have just been straight orange place cards period. I don't remember exactly what it did because obviously it's changed, you know? And so it was a double draw X and it itself was a place card. And so then with other cards, you could bounce that card back to your hand. And so you could just play it over and over and over as many times as you wanted to, as long as you could continually empty your hand out. Now, obviously, it wasn't quite that simple, otherwise I would have decked out on, like, turn one. And you do get to a point where with duplicates and other things, like, you can't draw as effectively with it, and your usage, you know, goes down efficiency-wise. But yeah, it was it was pretty bonkers. So it's uh, it lost some things on it, and some other cards got changed as a result of it. And now the orange uh, the orange place theme is in a much better space than it was. Probably a good thing that that was ironed out in in testing. I could see that being uh, kind of similar to um, when when it was first announced about Love at First Sight, to where it's like okay. That's the first time that I ever heard the term NPE, negative play experience, but it was like literally all you heard for a while. <laughs> so I can imagine how that would that would come out like phase one if that dropped. And that's, and that's where every player is a little bit different too, frankly, because negative play experience is typically only negative play experience on one side of the table. It was a whole lot of fun decking out on turn five, let me tell you. Like, I enjoyed it. And that's that's the hard thing as playtesters is how do we balance players getting to do these super cool, super fun maybe a little bit broken things with overall health of the game and how does their opponent feel and things like that. And it depends what kind of mood you catch me in. But like, sometimes I enjoy that stuff happening to me. Like if you find a combination of cards where like you get to do something super cool and awesome. Yeah. I lose probably because of it. And that doesn't make me too happy, but like, that's super cool. I enjoy it when those things like happen and are developed. Now, Love at First Sight, since you mentioned specifically, is kind of the opposite version of the orange stuff from GOC. The orange stuff from GOC puts me at a super huge, overwhelming card advantage, but you still get to play your cards. It just doesn't really matter much because, you know, you have eight of them and I've got a hundred. Whereas with Love at First Sight, 
it was extreme negative player experience because of how it interacted. And I don't get to do anything as your opponent. You literally take away my ability to play my cards at all. And that <laughs> isn't what we want. Obviously, we don't want a huge disparity in card advantage in general, which is why we tone down the orange stuff. But if you have a way of getting a pretty big card advantage, as long as your opponent still has the ability to play the game, that's kind of okay with us. You know, you look at some of the stuff that Jaden's doing with post-exilix. Jaden can go plus 10, plus 12, plus 14 pretty easily with his various post-exilic builds. And that is not fun to play against. And I've been on that other side of the table and it's like, okay, what do I do? You know, but at least I have cards in my hand that I can play. All right. So you mentioned the orange uh, place theme or sub theme and the fact that it gave you that massive card advantage for one player. How much will you guys actually work on a card and, and make changes to it before you're just like, okay, what we're trying to do with this card is creating an unfair advantage one way or the other. Let's just completely scrap the whole card. How much work will go into it before you get to that point? Sure. I think it depends a little bit on what the card is and its importance to either the set or, you know, the sub theme that it belongs to as a whole. So you look at a card like uh, Plague of Hail, which we recently spoiled, and Plague of Hail went through a couple different edits during the playtesting process that, you know, toned it down a little bit from where it was and got it to where it is now and, and what we showed. And so Plague of Hail is, you know, part of the Plague set that we've done across the last few sets. You know, we had a goal and a plan to reprint all of them into these sets. They don't really belong to the Gospel set or the Prophecy set or the Lineage set. Um, or the Fall of Man set. I think we even had them as far back as that, but they are super important to us. So one way or another, Plague of Hail was always going to be in the set. The question was, would it have that ability on it? So then you look at another card, and I'm just going to give you the title. So we have a card called Expelled from Heaven in the set. And that card, I can tell you, if we couldn't have gotten the ability to a good point on it, we probably just would have cut it because in fact that card went through a name change. It has a similar ability to what it did, but at one point it had a totally different name on it. It had different art. And basically we looked at the verse and we said, okay, we're going to change the name and we're going to change the ability slightly. And now this is this card. And so it depends a little bit on the importance to the set. Plague of Hail was always going to be in the set. The question is just, what would the ability on it be? You know, you look at a hero, and this isn't going to be a good example because they're all pretty important. But if you look at the 12 disciples, Peter's going to be in the set. We'll find a way to make an ability for Peter work. One of the other like minor disciples, if they were on the new card face and playable, maybe we would have cut him if we couldn't get the ability to work. Now, I will tell you that all the Disciples are in the set. We didn't cut any of them. We wanted to get them all on the new card face and available for rotation and whatnot. But that's another example of, hey, it matters how important the card is. That helps determine how much work we'll put into the ability. All right, so you mentioned all 12 Disciples made it into the set. There was none cut. Could you tell us if all of them have a flip side that is obviously judas turns evil on his flip side which i think was orange and and maybe something else but are all of the disciples do they have do they have a meat flip side 
So I think in Gabe's uh, spoiler articles, as you can go back and read on Land of Redemption, uh, shameless plug there for Gabe's site, I think he references the fact that uh, we did Clay as the as the flip side of some characters, similar to how we did LOC, and that we looked at those as characters um, that lived past Pentecost. And so they were alive after the Holy Spirit had come down, which is our requirement for clay brigade, so to speak. And so then if you look at his purple article, it talks about how all the disciples live past Pentecost. So yes, uh, all the disciples in the set have a flip side and that flip side is clay brigade along with, uh, like I said earlier, uh, Peter has some green on him. So there's, there's your spoiler nugget from the podcast is why we tune in guys. Cause sometimes we get people on here that say things. So Peter's got some green on him. And so he's green clay. And then I, I'll go ahead and say that, yes, uh, since we're talking about LOC style flips, I think you can connect the dots there. And uh, most of those disciples are, are meek on their clay side. Nice, nice. I know that he also mentioned that they had abilities that required you to show a dominant for an extra benefit or for getting the most out of their abilities. So having a meek flip side kind of gives them i don't know obviously it's just all just speculation from this side of the table at this point because we don't have the cards in our hand but almost gives them expectation for what you could build besides just like the the disciple theme mix a man with clay and things of that nature like we were talking about earlier where you use um mr saint patrick here you know you can make you can bring in kind of meek style things into clay so early church persecuted church didn't have didn't have that style of character you can you can kind of bring that in and boom now you got awesome things you can play off some of the meek support to help with those themes that's pretty cool to know and and i think that's important and i'll i'll expand on on one of the points that you made there because i think it's important to to know you know some of our philosophy on design we want that you know we don't want to necessarily uh pigeonhole or shoehorn players into building certain decks specific ways all the time. We want players to have that creativity in the deck building space and how they can use cards that uh, can overlap and go to different places. You don't have to play, you know, if you're playing a disciple deck, quote unquote, you don't have to play all 12 disciples in it. You could play six disciples and six other cards that mesh well with them. You could play, you know, a combination of different themes and factors and things like that because of their versatility and how they operate. Now, I would say that your strongest disciple deck is probably going to play most, if not all of them, but you don't have to build it that way. And I think that's really important for the health of the game, that players have the opportunity to look at the cards and say, I'm going to do this with this card and find scenarios and things where they use a card in a different theme. And then, you know, they take it and it's like, hey, that's super cool. You know, we like that. Um. So do you have a favorite card from the new set and are you able to tell us about it? So I do have a favorite card from the new set, but I can't tell you about it. Uh, we have been sworn to secrecy on the ultra rares and uh. Uh, one of my favorite cards from the new set is one of the ultra rares. Actually, frankly, so there's, there's six ultra rares in the set. That might be a nugget that may or may not have been out yet. But uh, there's six ultra rares. 
And frankly, I love all of them. Like picking ultra rares this year was really pretty easy. There were a few in contention for, you know, slot, you know, six, five and six. But frankly, uh, the first four slots were like unanimous. Like we all just knew like going in like these cards are ultra rare cards. And then the last two slots, it was a little bit more of a discussion of, hey, like, what do we think about this and this? And and then, yeah, OK, these are these are clearly ultra rare, you know, and frankly, the ultra rares have been decided for literally months, which helped form our playtesting of them, too, because we knew that, hey, you know, card X is ultra rare. It can have a little bit stronger ability on it. We don't need to tone that down power level as much because we know it's going to be ultra rare. So is your favorite card a hero? Ooh, you're going to go digging. All right. My favorite card is not a hero. So it's a lost soul. Got it. Got it. Yes. It's a meek lost soul. <laughs> From Daniel. <laughs> From Daniel. Yeah, it's got a Daniel reference on it. <laughs> it really it really helps bring the eyes to see combo to life. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to be able to hit consistently with that. Oh, man, that's hilarious. I'll let you keep playing 20 questions. I'll, I'll choose when to stop telling you things. About this specifically or 20 questions just throughout here? No, no. 20 questions about the card. Um, is it... Is it a city? It is not a city. See, I'm trying to go for things that I know hit two. <laughs> with that one. Um... We might just do the we might just do this baseball style. Maybe I'll give you three strikes. So that was strike two. Strike two. Oh my goodness. So now the listeners are gonna be yelling at me. <laughs> um okay. Can I bring in a pinch hitter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what what pinch hitter you want to bring in? <laughs> I'm gonna call a friend. Phone a friend. Where's phone, Brad at? <laughs> phone a friend. <laughs> um I guess I so yeah, it's, it's, the debate right now is, is it a fortress, a dominant or evil character? Those are the three choices I want to ask. I'm not going to ask, ask all three because that's rude. You said one, one more question. So I'll say, is it a fortress? It is not a fortress. It is not a fortress. So in this scenario, I'm Max Scherzer and you're like Javier Baez or something. You just struck out. So, oh, well. There's always next year. <laughs> um, recently, we had we had Gabe on and spoke to him about kind of the trade off of being, uh, you know, not not being as much of an active competitive player. And he he responded to that by saying he has nothing left to prove. And I think everyone listening here knows your name, knows your knows like your reputation within the com- competitive space. Um, and the fact that you really haven't lost any of your competitive edge, how do you balance that? How do you, how do you make sure that you, you are giving everything you can to your role as an elder, but also kind of, uh, making sure that you're in as good of a position to be a competitive player as you can. Oh man, that's a good question. So I listened to the, the episode with Gabe and I really enjoyed his answer to that question about not having anything left to prove. And that's kind of where I feel I am too. I don't have anything left to prove. 
now I'm just playing because of like things that I enjoy. And, you know, you talk about like how everyone has their like motivations and things like that. And, you know, honestly, what motivates me competitively is I just want to keep like doing things that nobody's done before. And I actually, I have this really funny, like, uh, metaphor or analogy and Gabe knows that I love him to death. So he won't take offense at this. Maybe he will. And he'll call me and yell at me and that'll be okay. But so I view Gabe kind of a little bit like Peyton Manning. So like superstar quarterback, incredible player, won a couple Super Bowls, uh, in the conversation for greatest of all time. And, you know, was satisfied retired, sailed off into the sunset. So Gabe is Peyton Manning. And then he got this, this little guy called Tom Brady who said, you know what? I still got more that I want to do. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. Everybody knows that. But for a while, the conversation was Peyton or Tom, which one's, which one's better, you know, and Peyton retired. And Tom said, eh, I think I'll go win a few more Super Bowls, you know, and Tom Brady could retire whenever he wants to. And he has nothing left to prove, but he just does it for the sheer like joy and competitiveness. And I don't know what motivates him, but at some point he'll just be like, you know what? I'm good. And he'll just sail off into the sunset. And so I view myself a little bit as like Tom Brady. And I'm not saying that I'm the greatest of all time, but like I'm just playing because it's fun and I can still be super competitive and I can still like set goals for myself. So like right now, honestly, I have a goal and I'm going to go ahead and say it. And so now it won't happen because I'm going to talk about it, but <laughs> I have a goal of being the first person to win teams three years in a row with three different teammates. So I won two years ago with Josiah and I won last year with Jaden. So I want to win teams this year with somebody else. Cause I just think that would be something cool. Like, 20 years from now, nobody's going to care about my redemption career. I'm not going to care about my redemption career 20 years from now. But right now in the moment, like that's my goal. Like that's what I'm working on. That's what I want to do, you know, and, you know, everybody sets their own goals and has their own things and things that, you know, are rewarding to them. And so when you are, you know, a competitive player, it, sometimes it's tough because it's like, hey, I've won, you know, nationals type one, two player three times, like, so the bar is set really high. So like if I come in, you know, fourth or fifth or whatever it was I came in this year, like for some people, hey, fourth or fifth top cut. I mean, they're doing jumping jacks. And for me, it was just like, okay, cool. What am I playing tomorrow so I can get a chance at winning again? You know, like don't get me wrong. I was thrilled to be top four, but like I, my bar is just set that much higher. Um, as far as, you know, trade-off goes, it's it's tough to balance sometimes and frankly i have found myself being less like hyper hyper competitive as the years have gone on especially like the last five and part of that is um elder playtest related to that and part of that's just life related as well um you know i'm in a point in my career where I'm working extremely hard to advance in my career where I want to be professionally. Uh, so I can continue to, you know, put food on the table for my wife and kids and a roof over their heads. And so that's taken up more of my time uh, than redemption. And so then the redemption time that I have, then I have to decide how to balance that between uh, being competitive or, you know, giving back to the community through the elder work. So I do see myself, uh, frankly, in the past few years, um, being uh, dedicating less time to competitive play overall. And kind of like I said at the beginning, that's fine because 
I'm okay with that. And frankly, I think that point where I, you know, kind of, you know, quote unquote, retire or whatever, will probably be when I stop like winning, whenever that is, you know, and because right now I'm still winning, it's still fun, it's still whatever. And I'm not putting much time into it. And that's okay. And then when I stop, when I stop winning, then I'll just, you know, put even less time into it. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is you're issuing a challenge to the community right now that they need to band together, get better and retire you. I mean, if they want to, that's fine. I wouldn't call that a challenge necessarily. Um, I love seeing the the new wave of redemption players because you got to remember, I've been around like a super long time and it was super exciting and encouraging this year at Nationals to see a some of the old stalwarts that have been around forever, uh, like Tyler and whatnot. And then to see a lot of newer players that have been around for a couple of years now, but not necessarily, you know, the decades that some of us have been. And to see those guys, you know, really start to come into their own and win titles and be super competitive. And it was just really awesome. And I got that feeling a little bit last year, too. Obviously, last year with COVID was a lot smaller tournament. And, you know, this year's was uh, a bigger size, which is super encouraging. I'm really looking forward to next year. I think we'll have a huge turnout um, at next year's tournament. And so it's really exciting and encouraging to kind of see this next uh, generation of competitive players uh, come up. And so I'm really honestly looking like forward and we'll stick with football because I, I don't know why I'm on football tonight, but I am. Um you know, it's really exciting to see like the Patrick Mahomes of the worlds, you know, coming up and, you know, someday, you know, 10 years from now, players will look and be like, dude, this dude is so good. Like no one's ever been as good as this guy. And that's awesome and exciting. And right now, if I had to place money on it, I'd tell you that's Jaden. Um, what Jaden did at this year's nationals was absolutely bonkers. I mean, he went undefeated the entire weekend and won three categories. He played all three days, won all three days. I guess if he's Patrick Mahomes, I'm just going to have to settle for being um, like Justin Herbert. <laughs> yeah, Justin Herbert. You know, you've been around for what, two years now, three years, something like that. So, I mean, you look at Justin Herbert, he was a rookie uh, last year and had a pretty good rookie season. And this year he's been playing really, really well. And if he can continue to build upon that, I think Justin will be a really good quarterback in the NFL for a long time. It's so tough in the NFL to evaluate you know, younger players coming in because you got like your Carson Wentz's that everybody thought was going to be like incredible and amazing. And I think he's a really good player, but he's, uh, you know, he's on a second team now and there's always those kind of like lingering doubts and whatnot. But yeah, I'd say you got a chance of being Justin Herbert. All right. So you've gotten to see kind of the next generation and, and see them come up and kind of over your course of, I guess, at least the last decade where you've been, one of the top competitive players you've gotten to see new people. Um, how, how was it when you first came in before, before you became that, that high end competitive player, how did the first nationals that you went to, how did that treat you and how was, how was everything going through it for the first experience for you? Oh man. So my first nationals was 2003 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was 12. So just to put some frame of reference here, I was 12 in 2003 so that you can, you know, do some math there and figure out how old I am now, but I, I was 12. And so I was still not uh, very good. I've been playing for, you know, five years at that point, but I was still young, uh, didn't fully understand 
what made cards good and things like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I wasn't like the bottom player in type one, two player, but I think I was like fourth from last or something like that. Um, I, I got blown out in like every game I played. Um, which honestly, I don't have a whole ton of memories from 2003 tournament, but it was a good experience. It was fun. It was a huge gaming hall and there were a ton of players there and it was really cool. Like, you know, introducing myself to some of these people that I just kind of like heard about um, and got to meet for the first time. That was like a super cool experience, especially as like a 12 year old kid, you know? And so the one thing we've just always had as a community is we're, we're very welcoming. And I think that's really good and really awesome. And so, yeah, in type one, two player, I, I didn't do very well. And it's kind of actually funny because back in that day um, and for a few years there, the last place player got like some nice prizes too. Um, and I was like, and I didn't know that. And then they like announced it and they like gave all these things to the guy that was in last place. And I knew that I was like, fourth the last time like that and i was like man maybe i should have just lost a couple more games <laughs> make it make it worth your while at least yeah exactly so but you know i would say uh my first nationals as you know more of you know an adult a mature individual etc um was in 2007 um and i would say i wasn't like full-on full-on competitive at that point but i was definitely uh definitely much better than I was in 2003. And so I've actually been to every national since 2007. I haven't missed any uh, since then. Uh, but 2007 was in Kansas City. And that was a very, very good tournament. And it was very, uh, very interesting interacting with players as more of a, hey, I'm a pretty good player. And as opposed to, hey, I'm just this little kid, you know, and it was fun hanging out with, you know, all stats with Gabe, um, with some of the other players uh, from that time that don't play anymore, uh, like the Wolves and the Hakes and things like that. You mentioned that the community being welcoming. I really do think that's one of the strongest pulls for the game. It's not it's not just the game. And I, I really do think it offers a lot of strategic, um, I, don't, I don't know, challenges when it comes to deck building. You can build your, your deck in a variety of different ways obviously everybody's trying to achieve the same win condition type one you're, you're looking for five souls type two you're looking for i think what is it seven shows you how much i know about type two by the way so what we do with within our deck building to accomplish that is kind of cool and so i like that that's what pulls me in from an x's and o's but like what what makes me want to create a podcast and invest into that and like engage the community doing the second year of the Christmas card swap, things of that nature. And just like involving the community and being like, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain what I'm trying to explain, but the community is very welcoming, inviting, and it makes you, it makes you believe in the game and what the game is set up to accomplish as far as being a tool for people to kind of dive more into their faith or share their faith with other people and use that as kind of a, not, not just a hobby that, that, is just a hobby, but be able to be kind of like a, I don't, I don't know, a way, a strategic way to, to promote who you are as a person. Kind of like what Derek was talking about. There's only so far you can go with certain people. You can't get to a deep level. And I think that the community allows you to get deeper into the game of redemption than you would a normal game. Um, 
but anyway, so say was what was there a question there for me? Because I agree with everything that you said. There, there I, was not. Every now and then, I just feel like this. I, I feel this mantle on my shoulder just to preach, you know, and just just get it out there, testify. <laughs> uh, but when I first got introduced to the game, uh, it was the summer of 2019. I remember because I had just gone through my first terrible season of spring baseball into the summer, being a uh, volunteer coach for my kids' little league. And I wasn't feeling too great about, about things at that point. And that was when Brad was like, hey, check out this game, Redemption. I played it as a kid. And I think Lifeway's going out of business. And I think I saw them in the store. And I was like, okay, I'll go check it out. I kind of was looking for some way to, you know, like repurpose some of my, you know, free time. Since, you know, I stunk at baseball coaching. It was <laughs> It was a weird, a weird transition to where, like, yes, I could use something to get my mind off of it, and like, I went gung ho when we found those starter decks. Um, and this is also where I'm actually not going to talk about any of the booster packs that we bought that day. Um, you don't want to talk about the Angel Wars packs that almost turned you <laughs> off from the game. I, I do not. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so when I got introduced to it, like your name was one of the ones that came up, and if you go and you look and you find. Um, any anything on the message boards about any of the top decks? Either either they're talking about how they how they did in comparison to you, or they're talking about how well they did. And then like there's this comment down there from Red Dragon Thorn, kind of you know poking a little bit. Um, not not that you not that you do that to anyone. Oh no, never! I never poke the bear. You were you were coming off of first place at the the previous Nats of 2018 and then you followed it up and you won that next year which was like as we're getting into it and then i met jay and jeremy and it was right after nationals and i missed it by like a week man like i went i went and hung out with those guys a week after nationals and if i had just found it a week sooner i would have been i guess that was in tennessee i would have been there um but anyway so you won back to back how did how did it feel you're talking about how you weren't competitive at first and then you got competitive, you got to the top of the line, you're one of these players people talk about, and then you won back-to-back. How does that feel? Honestly, it was super cool at the time. <laughs> the uh, the feeling, like the immediate like emotional feeling after I won in 2019, and this is going to sound like weird. Um, so after I beat Josh, my immediate feeling was like relief, like, okay, we, we got there, you know, cause like nobody wants to like follow up a win with, you know, coming that close and then falling a little bit short. Like you don't want to win and then come in second, but if you win and then you win again, like that's super cool. Or if you win and then you just like flame out entirely, like then the pressure is just off. But like, as that day, like built and went in 2019, like, First off, I wasn't like a thousand percent confident of my deck going in. Like I thought structurally it made sense and like it was going to be good. But if you go back and like look at some of the threads uh, from when I like initially put the deck out on the boards, like I had done well with it, but not like exceptionally well. And I didn't think I was going to win. Like I thought I was going to do well because I normally do well. Like I didn't think I was going to win. And so then like as the day kept going and I like kept having good games and victories and then I made top cut and then I won the first round of top. It's like, okay. And I just like felt that like pressure just like building on me, like almost in like a negative way. Like a lot of times I can take pressure and like turn that into like a positive and, and spin it that way. Not that day. Like it was just like a super, like almost like debilitating, like 
oh my goodness, like what if I lose, you know? Because at the time, like it was, I'd, I'd won a couple, but I don't feel like I'd really like cemented myself as like the best. And I felt like when I won in 19 and I could like just that relief, that's when I really felt like I cemented myself as like, like actually legitimately fully in the conversation of like all time, like greats, not just great, like for a few years or in that period, but like all time conversation greats. That was where I felt like I cemented my position in that conversation. And so it was just like the relief of, okay, like I can relax now. (laughs) If that makes sense, you know? Uh, Like, like how, because I did so bad coaching my, my kids baseball team that, that first year in 2019 when we did it in 2020, nobody expected anything. Exactly. No pressure. No pressure. You were fine. Yeah. And then we went out there and, you know, we kind of did the same thing. But that's all <laughs> <good>. <laughs> um, when you talk about deck building, like your, your name's one of the ones that's brought up a lot within the community. And I'm, I'm sure you, you've kind of picked up on that as well, but like being a new player, asking people and it's like, well, just go check out, check out John's deck. See what, see what he's been playing. See, see how he comes up with this idea. And so if you, if you don't mind, we'd like to, you know, ask, ask a little bit about deck building for, you know, the listeners and see kind of how you put thought into your deck and how you flesh it out to where you go and you can do well at tournaments and nationals. And you feel like you you sit down and that deck's capable of winning. Um, so it seems that once you get to that process or once you get to that point in time where you're at nationals, you sit down, you've got a well-optimized deck that you've you've put time into and you've balanced and you've you've done enough tweaking to where you think it's the best product or best version of itself. How much time do you put into building decks and going through that process to kind of make sure that it's perfectly optimized before you have the final product that you would like play at nationals. So it it honestly, it kind of varies from year to year and deck to deck. Um, Some decks just kind of naturally all fall into place and the cards in them make sense together. And I don't have to do too many tweaks or edits. And there's sometimes that I build the deck and it's pretty far off and I have to work at a little bit and sometimes I scrap it and sometimes, you know, it takes a few iterations to get to where it needs to be. Sometimes I'll grab, you know, concepts from a deck that didn't work and implement them into a deck that does work. Um, so, you know, if you look at 2019, um, I played the CWD deck at nationals. Well, a lot of the, uh, um, pieces of the CWD deck were taken from a deck that I built, you know, earlier that year, that flamed out like it didn't work well. And so that deck that I built, I took it down to a local tournament in Kansas City, uh, Missouri, um, and played ironically against Josh. Um, and and it didn't do well. And so the deck that I was trying to build was basically I looked at the state of the game and I said, hey, I think what's really good right now is CBN battle winners. Like I want to play as many CBN battle winners as I can. I want to have awesome matchups. I want to have broad targeting cards. I just want to win the one-on-ones uh, really well. And so I played a deck that ran Ehud Ehud's Dagger. It ran uh, Samuel um, Samuel's Edict. And then it ran Ezekiel with um, Ezekiel Sword or whatever that other card is. Razor. I don't know. Basically, he's got two CBN battle winners that he can play. And so I was running all these enhancements that 
can be CBN on the right characters in the right times. And then I was, I was obviously running all those characters. And what I found was pairing up the enhancements with the characters was a lot harder than I thought it was. And so like the deck just didn't work out well with the hero selection and the enhancement selection I had, but the overall process and concept of, Hey, I want to play CBN battle winners and have really good, strong one-on-one matchups. You can see that in the 2019 CWD deck um, that I won with. You can see some of those same concepts echoed there with how that deck was built. It just did it in a different way that was better than what I was trying early on in the year. Do all of your decks that you come up with try to um, exploit some kind of concept? Or you said that you you wanted to do CBN battle winners. Or do you do you kind of pinpoint something and then build your deck around that each time? Or how do how do you come up with deck ideas? So you know sometimes it's uh, <laughs> it it's so hard to answer this question for you, John, because it varies so often. I know it's a very vague answer, but like different things happen. And so I'll tell a story or not really a story. I'll just tell you a little bit about myself and anybody who uh, knows me well and has like seen me like, like do things and look for cards. I am like super not organized with my card collection, like at all. Like (laughs) it is just like a random box of things. It's not sorted by set. It's not sorted by brigade. It's not sorted by card type. It is literally a shoebox just full of random cards. Now, obviously, like my high end expensive cards and like those cards, those are all in sleeves, like in a separate box and and whatnot. Um, and I will say I've gotten slightly better in recent years and like all of my uh, POC stuff is together. All my LOC stuff is together. But basically, as time goes on with each new set, I need space. And so older sets get put in the shoebox, quote unquote. And it is, I mean, it's not a shoebox because I've got more cards than that, but it is literally just a big old box of cards. And so sometimes I get the deck idea because I have to go find a card that I need for a different deck. And I have to look through my entire collection in order to find the one card that I need. And I'll see a card or a combination of cards next to each other. And I say, huh, those might be good in a deck or I could build a deck around that. And it just like refreshes my memory and like triggers like, Hey, like obviously I know quote unquote that that card exists, but I've like, it gives me fresh eyes on it and say, Oh, like this card is being undervalued or overlooked, or I can do something with this card that is interesting. So a lot of the ways come up from there. Sometimes it is as simple as I see a card that I think I can exploit or use in a way that's going to give me a huge advantage. Um, you see it a little bit with the Mayhem deck and the CWD deck. Those are both decks that were built around turning a fair card into an unfair card for me. Um, and so you see that a little bit in my deck building. And sometimes it is just that I'm taking a theme uh, like Prophets or Judges or Post Exilics, and I'm just building that theme. And then I'll find ways to build that theme differently or better than other players are doing. Uh, so sometimes it's that way too. So it's, it's a variety of different ways. Well, let me ask you this. This, this might also lead to a vague answer, but that was, that was pretty, pretty detailed for a vague answer. So I'll give you credit on that. Um, but when you build decks, do you ever build for um, like how, how you'll use that, that deck. So say, do you build a fun concept deck for a locals or do you build a deck for a, you know, an online tournament versus 
what you'll play at nationals or do you just sell out for what you may play at nationals? What's the balance there? Um, I don't have the time anymore to build quote unquote fun decks. So if I'm building a deck, it's probably going to be 100% competitive all the time. Like if I build it, I intend to play it at the highest competitive level that I can. Now I will say caveat to that. I did build a deck for the first online tournament that we did with rotation a couple months ago. So I specifically wanted to build a deck that played all of the, uh, you know, semi hard to get angels that we release as national promos that are uh, rotation legal that I have copies of um, and Grapes of Wrath, which is rotation legal um, that I have a copy of. I wanted to play all of those cards. You wanted to flex. Uh, right. I wanted to flex a little bit. Uh, the deck wasn't very good. So uh, like my flexing didn't work out because I didn't win with it. Um, but it was enjoyable and I enjoyed that as well. So, I mean, you don't have to be even as a highly competitive individual and player. I don't I'm not necessarily competitive all the time. And I would say if you would ask me that question, you know, five, six, seven years ago, I would tell you that, yeah, I build I build decks for different purposes. Um but these days, most of my time, if I build in a deck, is because I think it's going to be really good and I intend to play it at a competitive level. Me personally, I'm so competitive that if I build a deck and I play it and I'm like, okay, I struggled with this against, I don't know, someone. And I'm like, okay, I would never play this at nationals. That deck is getting scrapped, is getting put back in the box. My box is organized, so it will go where it goes. And I... I will never put it back together again until like maybe something else comes up and I'm like, okay, let me revisit that. Like I'm, I'm all about like selling out for the nationals level deck and I just can't make my mind think anything else. You were never like that. You were able to build fun decks from the beginning six, seven years ago. You mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think six, seven years ago I, I built fun decks and sometimes those fun decks, uh, you know, evolved into the super high level competitive decks. Um, the uh, <laughs> 2015, I I won with uh, the defensive heavy sight lock deck, uh, the Hero Light, and that I originally built the night before uh, Minnesota State. Um, a little bit competitive, obviously it was a state tournament. I wanted to do well, but a little bit because like I was just kind of like, eh, I, I can't build a deck that I really feel comfortable with that is really good. And literally the night before the tournament, I built the deck and and played it and like had like this light bulb moment of okay <laughs> you know like this is something that's really good but it was originally designed as you know hey i'm gonna mess with some people i'm gonna kind of play the jerk move and just like sit there and and dare them to try to get through my massive wall of defense you know how many how many decks will you go through if you're like working a tour uh a tournament season toward nationals how many deck ideas will you go through before you settle on what you think is good usually is it is it that first one you put together can you make that be it or how much work goes into like trimming it down from actual decks it depends a little bit on the year frankly there's been years where i've played four or five different decks before settling on the one that i want and then there's been years that i've played one or two um so like if we look at 2018 uh, hashtag mayhem that was the only deck that I played that year. I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how to do it. Uh, there were a few minor tweaks to that deck, um, but like overall, like that deck was what it was. Um, in 2019, I probably played three different decks. I played uh, the 
the first version of some green and some gold stuff together that didn't really work out. And then I tried something else for a little bit. I don't even remember what it was, but I know there was a deck between the two. And then I built the the Covenant with Death deck um, that I eventually won with. And that had um, some some tweaks, obviously, um, between you know the regional level and the national uh, level. Um, but it stayed fairly true um, to itself after I built it um, before those couple four or five card tweaks before nationals. Um, and then like last year, I built two decks. Um, I built the, I guess, kind of three. Uh, we'll call it three. I built the Love at First Sight deck and fully intended to play that. And my version of it didn't use uh, creation. And so I had the non-creation Love at First Sight deck, and then it got released publicly. And I think my version with the stacking in a world where people don't know about the combo, I would have been very comfortable playing. In a world where people knew about the combo and how to disrupt it, the creation version is obviously far superior. So then I built the creation version and put my own spin and, and tweaks on it and had some different cards in it than, than some of the players that brought it to Nationals. And so I had that built. So that's kind of deck two, but it's really more like deck one because it was still love at first sight combo, right? And then I had the deck that I actually played at Nationals, which was a very similar deck to what Josh won with, where it's the anti-combo deck. Okay, how many counters can I can I play and how can I disrupt love at first sight from going off? Because that was what the meta was. You know, we knew that there were going to be enough players bringing love at first sight variations to Nationals that the question was really, hey, do I want to play the coin flip game with my own version of combo, or do I want to bring anti-combo and see if I can weight that coin flip in my favor? That's kind of the perfect segue into this question, because you mentioned knowing what the meta was and knowing what you were going to face, and it kind of changed almost entirely what you played. You ended up making the anti-love at first sight or the, the counter deck and playing that. Um, and I have, I have this question that I was going to ask about how much of your deck building, how much of it, of, of your decisions on what you make between cards and selections, do you base that off of what you expect to see from your opponent? Oh, hundred percent. The metagame call is super important to the deck building process. If you bring a deck that just isn't going to work with what everyone else is playing, you're not going to have a good time at a competitive level. You might have fun games, you might have enjoyable games, but if your goal is to be competitive and to win, then yeah, you have to know what the meta is going to do. And frankly, that's been really tough the past couple of years with fewer tournaments, lower turnout at tournaments, and people are just not necessarily sharing as many deck lists on the boards. I think we had a really robust um, online community. We still do, but it shifted to Discord, which isn't necessarily as good for sharing deck lists and things like that. And so it has been a lot harder uh, in the last couple of years to make those metagame calls and like what you expect to see. Um, but definitely in years past, 100%, like, hey, I'm looking at what people are playing and, hey, this is what's doing well here. This is what won, you know, Northeast regionals. This is what won North Central regionals. And, you know, this is what most people were bringing and things like that. So 100%, the metagame is so important. And for a few years there, I'd say probably like 2000. 12 ish eh, 2011 maybe 2011 to 2014 
my the way that I played and the way that I built was I was decent at identifying the meta. And so I would build the meta deck and try to build it better. And I would play what the meta deck was in 15 through like 19. I built the deck that I thought could beat the meta. And then the last couple of years, because I haven't had as much time and because the meta has been less defined, I have built the meta deck, so to speak. So speaking about the meta and how important it is, this is this is definitely a loaded question. And I told you when I put it on the list, it was loaded. Um, so in its current infant, infantile state, so before Gospel of Christ, before we see what phase one entails and how that's going to change, what do you think the meta is? Or, or could you describe kind of what you expect people are playing right now and what what things look like in say your average tournament as we get get ready for phase one to release being that rotation has now happened so i don't have a really good answer to that question i wish i did but honestly i've played in one rotation tournament and it was the online tournament and i think we only had like four or five players that day so i just haven't seen enough of what people are doing obviously like i read the chatter on discord about what players are playing and things like that and so i it's really hard for me to say, you know, what the meta is. Obviously, I can talk about what cards I think are good in a rotation format. And so you look at things like AOE, CBN, Battle Winners, there's very, very few of those floating around. So I think negates are really powerful um, in in a rotation meta. I think if you are going to play the CBN things, that's going to give you an advantage. Uh, if you can make those work with what you're doing, a lot of those are conditional cards. And so if you can make those conditions work for you, that's going to be powerful for you. Obviously I think orange demons are in like a really, really good place right now with their two big bodies that are protected from various things. And then they've got a plethora of negates to back them up. Then they got their third big body in Abaddon. So I think demons are like really, really good right now. And so they're a pretty big piece of that puzzle. I don't necessarily think that they will be after GOC releases because we've got some obviously anti-demon tech in there because we realize that they're very good. Um, it's a New Testament set. And so, you know, King of Tyrus loses a little bit of his punch there because right now the meta is so ot focused um so i think uh he loses a little bit of his punch just naturally by the fact that we're releasing a new testament set that's going to give a lot of playable cards to new testament so i think that'll change a little bit after goc releases but right now yeah i think orange is a huge part of it you know offensively you've got you've got choices with what you can play ruth stuff is really good genesis is very solid you can build genesis a couple of different ways and have it be solid and well obviously post exilix is still silly good and then my favorite deck right now uh, that i've seen you know talked about or or whatnot is uh is jaden's um bounce deck uh showing that you can still do some of the silly stuff uh, from pre-rotation classic in the rotation format it's probably not quite as good or consistent as uh you know the um, choose the blocker in red and purple and bring in a Himalek. but it's uh, it's very similar and it's it's pretty good it's it's enjoyable so that that's probably my favorite deck right now i will say as far as like um the gameplay um you said you only, you've only played in one online tournament i've only played a handful of games and i guess 
the last couple that I played was with a Ruth deck. And I've noticed that rotation, and this is kind of with the reserve rule as well, and, and I'll get your thoughts about that in a second, but it seems like seems like gameplay has slowed down a little bit. Uh, obviously there's going to there's going to be a speed uh, a speed gap versus you know decks of classic format and now because you've got the reserve rule you've got a lot of the the speed cards that you lose for different themes um like for example losing um Ishmaya is is a major one for red warriors or for throne but it seems like you have more time to think and you're strategically thinking about how well you can do on this turn versus next turn to get to the win condition versus before where it was just like, all right, we're going to sound off the starting the starting gun and it's just like blazing. I'm trying to get to five as fast as I can, as absolutely fast. And obviously you're still trying to get to five first, but it seems like there's only one soul on the table for me. I'm not going to go into necessarily an endless treasures for a draw two if I don't have to to where I open myself up to a foreign wise block that kind of affects my timing to get to my win condition. Plus the fact that I might draw another soul that I put on the board to make me have to block more. Um, so it seems like there's a, it's, it's kind of slowed down. And part of that is the reserve rule um, kind of affecting like that big setup at the beginning of the game. So how have you seen in your, in your testing, obviously you've probably done more play testing with the reserve rule versus actually playing in tournament games and whatnot, but how has the new rule affected that? And are you seeing some of that kind of same, I guess, overall slower play? I think in general, yeah, which I think was, you know, one of our, our kind of goals with that reserve rule. Obviously there were a lot of different reasons that we did it, but we wanted to kind of push things where the games could get a little deeper in instead of kind of being, like you said, that kind of crazy, crazy race, you know, and I don't think we're necessarily all the way to the point but like 2015 defensive heavy lock hero light deck you know won nationals 2016 um gave one with with bomb and then in 2017 jd ran uh one with his children of light deck and ever since like 16 which bomb i would describe as you know an offensive deck but much more balanced necessarily um but ever since you know 16 17 it's been kind of hey all out crazy like you have to be a fast aggressive deck in order to win even like 2019 covenant with death was a little bit off the trend from that but that deck was a very fast deck as well it was trying to set up a very specific card very fast and then win at a decent rate after that like it didn't want to miss on its rescues it didn't it had it had it had defense it had enough blocks in it um but it didn't have like a dozen blocks you know i had a couple i had you know four enhancements i had like two blocks with those and i had an auto block so like i had a few blocks and i could create some scenarios where it was like not advantageous for you to attack me but that deck wanted to win pretty quick too. the the turn clock on that deck wasn't necessarily super high and so i think since 2015 you've seen most most decks that win and most decks that people are playing have kind of those faster turn clocks where you know you have to make successful rescues every turn otherwise your opponent's going to get through and you don't have enough defense to to stop them and so you're on a clock so to speak where you have four turns to win or whatever three turns to win and so I think, kind of like what you were saying, I think with rotation, 
we've seen that clock get extended. The offenses aren't quite as powerful. They're not quite as fast. The defenses are maybe short up a little bit better. You can't get off to those crazy starts like you uh, referenced. And so your turn clock, instead of being a three-turn clock, now maybe it's a six or a seven-turn clock. And so you get a little bit deeper into that into that game state, which leads to more interactivity and more potential battles, which is what we want. We want people to have interactive battles and more opportunities for interaction. So I think that's really good. So as far as how it's like impacted, like my deck building, I haven't built a ton of decks in rotation. The decks that I have built, obviously I built a ton of play test decks in rotation, but those are just kind of a different beast. Um, but, uh, you know, the reserve rule is impacted a little bit as far as how I evaluate cards. Obviously, I still think Exiles and Remnant are good. I just don't think they're amazing the way that they were before. But I think they're still very playable souls. So I still play them. I just get a little disappointed if I see them early. Um, but, uh, you know, turn one, obviously, they're less ideal. Turns two on, those cards can still go to your reserve for things or they can get you other benefits. And honestly, there's a few different ways now for cards to get dumped into play off of star abilities. So sometimes Remnant on turn one can still steal a character for you, which can be you know very impactful right there. So I think they have uh, impact still and are still very playable cards, which those are kind of the two that everybody wants to talk about right now. Um, but I think they're still playable. And I think, uh, you know, has it made me shift my priorities on reserve access? A little bit, not not a lot. Um, so, but I I definitely agree with you that it feels like because of losing some of those pieces like Ishmaya and not being able to access the reserve on turn one, that the game has slowed down. And, and I definitely think that's a good thing. The thing that I would say is, you know, what makes it slow down is the consistency because we have less overall cards. And this is something that Josh Potras talks about like a ton is how the more cards you have in a pool the more uh, homogenous decks become, the more similarities you see between them, the more opportunities you have for the most efficient card in a deck and the more cards that can be that most efficient card until you have, you know, quote unquote, one true deck where it's, hey, this is the deck that is the most efficient, most powerful, whatever, just because of the extended nature of the card pool. Now with rotation, you have less consistency pieces overall. The pieces don't fit and interlock as well. You can't do things like extending your king's royalty banning chain through Ishmaya into some red things and vice versa. You can't build um, Prophets Judges together quite as well as you could before. They don't have the pieces that connect them. So you lose a lot of those um, cards that nobody really looks at as like, oh my goodness, Ishmaya is like the most powerful card ever. He was really good, and he was kind of that connect that connecting piece that allows some of these decks to be built because of what he could do, but he was never the best card in any of those decks. So we've lost a lot of those pieces with rotation. And I think that's a good thing. It makes deck building a more interesting process and more challenging process and how you go about things. I will say that as far as the, the slower, the slower play and especially the startup, I, I personally, in, in the few games that I've played, and not to like self-analyze on such a small sample size, but I actually think it makes me a better player because I'm constantly thinking about things that I used to not care about. I used to not care that I might put another soul on the table to force my defense to get an extra block at some point. You know what I mean? And, and now 
now you have kind of you're you're slowed down, so you're sitting there with your thoughts enough that you're like, okay, if I do this, they're doing that, and even though I was able to, if you're, I guess if you're a decent to above average player, you're probably going to know what your opponent's trying to do based on a few cards that they put in play at the beginning of the game. And then you can kind of tell based on their actions what they have in their hand. But now it's like not only just reading what they're going to do, it's like I have time to sit and think about what I'm going to do based on that. Where like I'm moving it. I'm moving faster than the game is now. And the game used to move a little bit faster than my thoughts did. And I think slowing it down actually makes me a better player. Oh, 100%. I, you know, I can't speak to you in general, but I think overall, I, when I evaluate, you know, how good a player is, I look at a couple different things. You know, we, we talked a lot about deck building tonight and how do you build decks. And obviously we talked about competitive play too, but there's there's different levels of things and skill sets and things that players are good at. And so the ability to make decisions in game and how you play your cards is a skill set that you have to develop and use as a competitive player. And some players are better at it than others. It's how many mistakes do you make in gameplay? You know, as you're sitting there and analyzing, hey, do I want to use my endless treasures and draw two cards, weighing out the factors of the risk, you know, the opportunity cost of potentially putting a lost soul on the table there. And so, yeah, I think that's super uh, great observation on your part. Um, and I think that's just something that happens Honestly, as you get more into the game and get better as a player, your in-game decision-making process should hopefully uh, become better. But that's a super important part as well. You know, I used to say that uh, James Repke was one of the best deck builders around, and he was part of that Russian play group. Um, but in games, you know, he was pretty good, but he wasn't the best. Um, I look at uh, Gabe and Tim. Gabe and Tim don't make mistakes when you play them. If you are going to beat Gabe or Tim, you have to play perfectly because they're going to they're not going to make a mistake against you and then they both pair that with a really really good deck building as well which is what made them the super amazing players that they are is they have both of those things going in their favor all right so um i think that's a good that's a good point to uh kind of wrap it up on is if you're if you're out there and you're you're looking at what you need to do to take the next step obviously kind of everybody's in kind of a learning mode with the new format and obviously the new changes to the rules being that we have rotation, we have the delayed reserve access, but kind of matching up how you build your deck and then learning in game to think about things and be more strategic with how you play a card. And I guess that's where you come into a lot of the top level players. When you look at their deck, their deck screams like two words. It's like, utility or our consistency but also versatility like you want to have more than one way to use certain cards so that every card slot is being maximized um it's something that we should all probably be be looking at especially if we're not considered uh, you know like a a multi-time national champ here uh, if you're trying to take that next step just kind of be aware of that as you as you play um but definitely want to thank you for coming on and kind of sharing some of your experience with GOC playtesting, going through the card creation process, and then kind of letting us pick your brain for deck building and things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. It was a pleasure to be on. Obviously, um, you know, I think a lot of your podcasts so far hasn't necessarily been 
aimed at super high level competitive stuff. So this was maybe a little bit of a, a departure there. Cause when I start talking competitive play, I just can't help myself. That is, that is how I'm wired. I, I'm going to talk about extremely high level concepts. So hopefully uh, as the viewers at home, that doesn't, uh, doesn't turn you off necessarily. I'm sure next week, John will be back to talking about more fun things than, than kind of what I talked about tonight. But, you know, if you do want to take that next step, like he said, obviously, um, breeding up on deck lists and utility power versatility all that stuff super important but yeah thanks so much for having me john i think the podcast is is awesome and i was happy to happy to join you well that's a wrap for episode seven in our conversation with john early hope you picked up on all the goc gospel of christ hints and learned something about deck building along the way from john's experience and wisdom in that area as of the release of this episode on Tuesday, November 30th, today is the final day to get your Gospel of Christ Phase 1 pre-orders at Your Turn Games for their current price. They will still be available after today, but the current price will no longer be locked in, and it will only go up from here. And the prices are good until 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, the Christmas card swap signups are still open until December 13th. So if you want to sign up for that, just go ahead and reach out to me via DM and I'll get you added to that. Next week's episode, we're going to branch out and we're going to have a discussion about type two, everything about type two, what it is, how it plays different from type one, kind of going to school for type two. And we'll be doing this with two of the best in the business in that area. We'll be sitting down with Jaden Alstead and Tyler Stevens. So make sure you check in next week. And as always, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you on next week's episode. Peace.